0: Okay, welcome back to our second session. I hope you've had a chance to get to meet somebody new and to talk to somebody around you. Thank you, Brother Coltharp, for reminding us that we are better together, and it is about the kingdom. Um, And I know he believes that and he lives that. We are very thankful for our president. we are thankful for you to be here tonight and tomorrow. We know you took time out of your schedule to be with us. If you have questions about Urshan College or Urshan Graduate School of Theology, I think Brother Bowie is in the house somewhere. If you are, raise your hand. I know he's here, but if, so if you have questions, you can ask any of us with a badge on. Uh, we'll be happy to talk with you more about the school, but we are excited to have you. Well, it is my honor to introduce the next speaker. I have introduced him many times over the years, so there's many things I could say about him. Uh, He is no stranger to us. He is an author. He's a scholar. But I know personally he is a leader that is humble and leads with compassion. So it is my honor to bring to you tonight our General Superintendent, Dr. David K. Bernard.
1: Thank you. Good evening, everyone. It's great to be here tonight at the Leadership Conference. We appreciate the leadership of Dr. Caltharp as the president of the Urshan System and as well, Sister Jenny Russell, the executive vice president. And I am happy to have uh, Pastor Kong, Sister Kong. He is the president of the Bible College of the United Pentecostal Church in Korea and is here to hopefully establish a closer working relationship, partnership, Uh, to enhance their program, so I'm looking forward to that and seeing what can happen. Maybe some of our professors can visit Korea at some point, and uh, we can have shared uh, operations or interaction in some way. So tonight, I want to talk about healthy leadership. Now, if you've heard me speak before on leadership, you might hear some of the same things. Uh, at the UGST symposium earlier this year, I did speak about healthy churches, so there's going to be some overlap. I also taught a session at General Conference, and there's going to be some overlap, but I've learned that if you want to get a message across, you have to say it about five different times in five different ways, and hopefully somebody will get something from it. So I hope it won't be boring, because I'll do something a little different. Uh, I'll delve a little more deeply and give you some scripture, and of course, I'm speaking primarily in a church context, or at least a spiritual context, but these principles do apply generally to leadership, even in the business community, or professional world, many of these would apply, maybe in somewhat different ways, so I've got a session tonight, a session tomorrow, so tonight, I want to focus on healthy leadership. Tomorrow I want to focus on developing servant leaderships, so I'm really building off of what Dr. Coltharp has introduced. Working as a team because that's going to be my first point. But if you're going to have a team, you have to have fellow leaders. So it's not a trivial thing. Uh, you know, having a team is more than just appointing a few people. You have to develop that team. And a lot of people's concept of a team is. I'm the pastor. I need five people to do what I want. So I have a team, and this guy will do this, and this guy will do that, and this lady will do this. Well, that's not really a team. A team is when you have a shared vision, and the team members are part of actually molding that vision as well as executing the vision. So that's what we want to talk about. So I'm going to start with Psalm 78. And I was studying. Sometime uh, earlier this year, this passage really st- struck, you know, really impressed me. Uh, and I'm going to read from the New King James Version, but I'm going to Psalm 78, verse 70 through 72. Is kind of a theme for what I want to say tonight. Psalm 78, 70 through 72. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes that had young. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, and Israel, his inheritance. And especially notice verse 72, So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. So two important principles of leadership. Number one, and in this order, integrity of heart. All true leadership, and especially spiritual leadership, and healthy leadership has to start with personal integrity in the heart of the leader. Integrity, what does that mean? I think first and foremost, we think of honesty. Uh, we think of ethics, being ethical, treating people properly and correctly. There is also um, a, a definition of integrity that means wholeness, integral, complete. And I think the two are related because you, you can be an expert in one area, not another, but you can't have integrity just in half your heart and not the other half of your heart. If you either have integrity or you don't, it's, it's a wholeness. And you know, in American politics, uh, we have this debate, and it really went, it was, uh, I guess it's always been with us, but uh, certainly going back to the time of Bill Clinton, uh, if as long as the leader's competent or the, as long as the leader does what you want, it doesn't matter their character. And that's really kind of what we decided as Americans. I don't think it's been an advantage to us. I do realize that someone might be a nice guy and be incompetent. I'm not really talking about that either. But I think we start with character, and especially in a church context or spiritual context. Who you are in your heart and who you are to your spouse and to your children, to your family. Who you are in the way you treat people who don't have status, or people on the margins, uh, that is who you are. And no true leadership can rise above the integrity of your heart. And so that's where we start, integrity of heart. But then the second component is skillful hands. So integrity is first and foremost and paramount. And if you do have integrity of heart, I think most other things that you need can be acquired through diligence. However, uh, a leader must also have ability. And uh, maybe they don't have perfect ability or all ability, but they have to have a desire to learn, to grow, to develop, uh, to improve. And so we want to see people who have skillful hands. And that's where the importance of ability, but also the importance of training comes into play. And so a healthy leadership and a healthy church culture will have both integrity of heart and skillful hands. So with that said, I'd like to talk about five key issues of healthy leadership. I'm not saying these are the only things, but these are the things that have come to the foremost. And, and I'll just speak from a perspective. I'm finishing 14 years as general superintendent, and we've seen a lot of wonderful things accomplished economically, structurally, spiritually, and so on, but there are two paramount things that I see going forward. Whatever time I have left in that role, it won't be another 14 years. I can guarantee you that, but uh, whatever time I have is two things are paramount. One is sustainable growth, and I'm happy to tell you uh, after COVID, COVID put a pause, but after COVID, we're seeing real growth in planting of churches, and credentialing of ministers, as well as financial health and strength. And so probably this conference year, if all goes well, it's very likely we will exceed 12,000 credentialed ministers in the U.S. and Canada, which, of course, will be an all-time record. And it's very highly likely that we will exceed 5,000 churches, daughter works, and preaching points, which will also be a record, and that's in the U.S. and Canada. As well as globally, we continue to advance, and officially there are 210 nations of the world, and our last report said we had uh, churches, works, or at least some kind of presence, a contact or something, in 199, and that's probably going to uh, jump up by five or more in this coming year based on things that are already happening. So, and then we've really introduced the concept of unreached people groups. So it's not enough to say, well, we have hundreds of thousands of believers in India, so check off India and let's go to the island nation, uh, you know, in the Pacific where we only, there are 10,000 inhabitants and there's no church. Well, I I want to reach those 10,000 inhabitants, but it's not the same as India. And even though we have strong works in India, there are entire states with no United Pentecostal Church and no one in that ethnicity or language. It could be 10, 20, 50 million people. So we can't say we've done a good job of reaching the world if there is an unreached people group of millions of people. And so we're focusing not only on geographical units called nations, uh, but we're focusing on the people. And I really think the Great Commission, the Greek uh, Matthew 28:19, is ethnos. so it's not just political units, but ethnic units. And even here in the United States and Canada, uh, there are ethnicities and language groups and subcultures that we haven't reached very effectively. So the need is great, but we're moving forward. So uh, there are so many things we could cover, but though that's the first goal. The second goal is what I'm talking about tonight, is healthy leadership and healthy churches. It's not enough to grow numerically if we're if we are not having qualitative growth. So we're not growing by any means. We're not just growing unethically, or we're not growing numerically to the exclusion of spirituality. But I want to see healthy growth, mature leadership. I want to see pastors operating with integrity and growing in healthy ways. And we can talk about that, but I think the key is to go back and be biblical in our leadership. Now, there's a culture component to leadership that changes. There's methodologies that change. And we can look, if we say, go back 50 years and take the typical United Pentecostal Church, probably less than 100 people in the Midwest, in the South, most typically, white, middle class, and a lot of working class people. And I use this illustration, it's kind of an exaggeration, but 50 years ago, the culture promoted Respect for authority. And so the leaders of the community were highly respected. The the banker, the lawyer, the doctor, the school teacher, the mayor, and the pastor. And maybe the pastor was respected most of all. And so you had a culture that was conducive to respect for authority. And when people in authority spoke, then their wishes usually prevailed and everybody was happy. And perhaps the pastor of that church uh, if he went to Bible college, might have been the most educated member of the whole congregation. If that pastor uh, went to general conference or if he had served as an evangelist before he was a pastor or if he took a missions trip, he probably traveled more than anybody else in the congregation. He had more life experience. So when people are buying their first car or their first house or even thinking about getting married or thinking about, sh- shockingly, going to college... Uh, Who would they talk to? They would talk to their pastor because he already knew all the stuff about that. And he probably knew more than anybody else in the church. And so then when he would teach on the Christian life, it was the same way. They gladly accepted his advice because he was the most knowledgeable person they knew, the most experienced person they knew, the most trustworthy person they knew. Well, do you think times have changed since then? We have a culture that actively promotes disrespect of authority, challenge authority question authority. And we have people in our congregations, wonderfully, that are professionals, that are highly trained, that may be much more educated than the pastor. It doesn't mean they're smarter or better, but they come from a different background. They might be a manager and they're, they have 50 people that report to them, maybe more than the pastor does. Uh, they may get on-the-job training every year in leadership and management. And so if the pastor just operates off the cuff uh, while the person may respect that pastor, that person may say, wait a minute, it doesn't look like we're following any structural management or leadership techniques that I've learned that I use. And so we're in a very different context. And so uh, we, our leadership style has to change, but not only by the, by the culture, but what I expressed a while previously may not have been totally biblical, but it mostly worked. But now we're in a different context where that style isn't going to work very effectively. So how do you know what works? I say don't just look at the culture, but go back to the Bible and see where we've gotten off track because of our prior cultural situation. And let's reorient back to the Bible, and then that will help us to be more effective in our new cultural situation. And, of course, we should take care not to get pushed too far just in the cultural situation with the latest fads and techniques of modern culture, like the, the diversity buzzword. Now, I certainly absolutely believe in the importance of diversity. What I'm saying is that doesn't necessarily equate with the latest political or cultural fads of what that might mean. As to take an obvious example, we don't define diversity in terms of LGBTQ community. So uh, while the Bible can help us get reoriented back to the basics, regardless of culture, we have to be just as concerned not to follow the, the new culture as we were the old culture, but to be effective in the current cultural situation. So I'm suggesting some of these points will help us to be more biblical, but also more effective in our current cultural context. So the first point, which Dr. Caltharp has already mentioned and introduced and taught, is team ministry. I do believe this is biblical. And I believe too often we have been uh, not completely as biblical as we could have. Now, let me make it very clear. I believe in spiritual authority. I believe in pastoral authority. And I served 18 years as a pastor of a church, bringing it from first service 11 members to approximate or 11 attendees, I should say, to 956 on the attendance roll, not counting the daughter works. So I do have pastoral experience. I know the importance of pastoral leadership and spiritual pastoral authority. However, it's authority, but not authoritarianism. And sometimes uh, we have overemphasize pastoral authority as if the pastor is the only significant voice or the only significant uh, decision maker. And as I alluded to earlier, the team just consists of people who follow the orders that the pastor has given. Well, that's not really a very effective team, nor do I think that's a, really a biblical team. So uh, you probably heard this, and you may have even heard it from me, but just as the foundation Let's take a look at Ephesians 4, chapter 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, excuse me, and we'll see God's plan for the church. And He Himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Uh, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Well, you, you could spend the whole hour just on that, There's so many positive things. But notice we're seeing a picture of healthy, mature, uh, and and, and a growing church in every way. I think this applies to the church at large. It applies to the local congregation. But notice what we often call the five-fold ministry. And I would say these are what we call the ministers of the gospel. These are the people to whom the UPCI would give ministerial credentials, preachers, teachers, leaders, Their job is not to do all the work, as some suppose. Their job is not to make all the decisions, as some suppose. Their job isn't necessarily to do all the preaching, as some suppose, or all the teaching, as some suppose. But their job, and you see not three different tasks for the preachers, but one unfolding task for the whole church in verse 12. So, the ministers of the gospel, the leaders, their job is to equip the saints. That's the believers. So the saints can do the work of ministry, that's service. And as, as we often say, everybody should have a ministry, not a pulpit ministry, but a place of service in the body of Christ. That should be our culture. Uh, a healthy church has a culture of service, a culture of involvement. Everybody is expected to be involved. Now, there'll be some on the fringes as the church gets larger. Some people don't want to make the commitment. Okay, fine. Those are the people you're trying to evangelize and disciple, and and you don't want to run them off because they're coming to your house. You don't have to go to their house, so you have the advantage, and and, uh, you have the unfair advantage because you've got the power of the Word and the Spirit. If they keep coming, you have a good chance of pulling them in, but you have to create a culture of involvement where involvement is the expectation for every believer, not just for every leader or every preacher or for the pastor. So that culture of engagement and involvement, that culture of ministry, that culture of service, uh, which alongside that has to be a culture of discipleship uh, and a culture of leadership training. So if a culture of involvement leads to a culture of discipleship, which leads to a culture of leadership training or leadership development. So the five-fold ministry has the job of training or equipping the saints, the believers, so, the believers can do the work of the church, and then the result is the body is edified or the body grows. So, here's, here's a picture of healthy growth. When leaders know their role is to train and develop, and members know their role is to work, then you have a healthy church, and a healthy church will grow. Okay, so that's, that's the importance of teamwork, developing a team. So, I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow when we talk about developing services. Servant leadership, because uh, that's what it takes. You you have to develop a team. Now, I'll just briefly touch on a few things before we go to the next point. But if you really take team leadership seriously or team ministry seriously, what are the implications for the church as a whole, for for the national, the international church, the national church, the the district that we? Well, that puts a premium on ministerial ethics, because as Doctor Coltharp said, in a lot of ways, we work independently of each other, and that's inherent in the nature of having a self-governing church, and I'm not suggesting we change that, but I do think there should be a higher commitment to working together. And so, you know, if you look in the New Testament, the term elder is used for the leader of the local church interchangeably with pastor and with bishop. Now, Now, we use the term bishop in other ways as well, but in the New Testament, the term elder or presbyter. Uh, the term pastor or shepherd, and the term bishop or overseer, is basically used interchangeably. Uh, if you're not sure of that, if you read, uh, we'll we'll read in a minute First Peter 5, and we, and you can also see Acts 20, and you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But the point I'm trying to make, the New Testament always uses the word elders in the plural, and some have suggested that there should be no senior pastor; it should just be a council of elders. I don't really believe that. I think there's evidence, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that when you have a team, there still is a leader of the team. And I've found in practical experience, there have been a few of our churches that have tried the model of two or three or four elders exactly equal. And what you have is somebody emerges as the spokesperson. Somebody emerges as the first among equals. Um, And so I just say practically, okay, if you want to have three pastors fine, but who do you want uh, for us to call uh, when you're, you know, if you want to use a member of your church for a, a, a district event, I need somebody's name to call. I need some point person. And you can you can handle it internally however you want, but we've got to have a representative leader of your team. And in practice, that's usually what happens. They They may be perfectly equal, but when they have a major decision, you look at not just the title, but who do they finally defer to uh, for the go-ahead of that decision. Uh, and you'll find there's a team leader, and I think the New Testament supports that. I'm not going to take the time to do that, but in most of the epistles, you see there seems to be a leader of the local church when it, when it's addressed to a local church. I even think in the book of Revelation, the seven angels of the seven churches are probably the human messengers uh not probably angelic beings who who read letters to the church uh but pro- probably um you know human leaders but anyway it's having but my point is by saying elders of plural uh there is an emphasis on multiple leaders. And in the case such as Rome, if you read Romans 16, it looks like there are at least five house churches that Paul addressed. But they all considered themselves the, the people, that saints of the church at Rome. So we would call them five different house churches with five different pastors. But they thought of themselves as one church that met in five different locations. So I'm not suggesting we're doing something wrong. I'm, I am suggesting that within the local church and within the city or state that you live, there should be a much higher commitment to working together as a team. We should not see ourselves as rivals and competing with one another, but we should see ourselves as working together. We're on the same team helping one another. And the way you can do that is through ministerial ethics, teaching it, practicing it, and if necessary, enforcing it so that we really do feel like in St. Louis, and I think we can say this is happening. We've got a number of strong United Pentecostal churches in St. Louis, but they work together. Uh, They're not seen as trying to compete as much as that together we're trying to reach this metro area, and we're trying to plant even more churches to do that. Uh, So uh, a high commitment to ministerial ethics, uh, overcoming silos where everybody works in isolation, Uh, overcoming turf protection where this is my town or this is my area of the city and don't you come into it. Um, Really, when when you're working uh, as a healthy team, sure, you don't want somebody to be unethical and encroach upon the people you're trying to lead. But at another level, it doesn't matter if a church is a mile away. It doesn't really affect your ministry. It doesn't affect what you're doing. Um, because you have your own ministry, your own character, your own personality, your own style. And so team ministry leads to more effective church planting. Uh, yes, we always will need the Lone Ranger, so to speak, the entrepreneur who goes off in the distance and starts a church where none exists. But that's the hard way to do it. Um, and, you know, yes, when, when uh, an army is trying to conquer a territory, you have to establish a beachhead. But you don't want to have to establish a beachhead every time you fight a battle. You want to establish a beachhead for the purpose of launching from that beachhead so that every subsequent battle will be easier because you have the, the plan and the personnel and the material to launch from that beachhead to conquer more territory more rapidly and more efficiently. And so we would need to work smarter, not just harder, And once we get strong, established churches in the area, use those churches to evangelize the area by growing as big as they can grow, but by also planting daughter works and preaching points and developing, raising up self-governing churches. And if we really think as a team, that's the right way to do it. It doesn't have to be a competition. And then within the local church, being more intentional about developing a team of leaders who take ownership. Yes, the pastor is the one who casts vision. You can't It's kind of hard for a committee to cast a vision, but a pastor can hear from God, can cast a vision, but he can pull key leaders into that to pray about and discuss and work on the vision so they feel like it's their vision too, that they're part of the vision of the church, not just the implementation, but the molding and shaping of that vision. And then I learned as a pastor, I tried to develop a very strong leadership team and and we had a planning, uh, we would actually have a retreat after we got well established. We had a retreat once in a year. We would plan the major events for the upcoming year. Of course, I reserve some things for me as the pastor. I, I plan some of the, our uh, key services, uh, evangelistic thrusts like revivals. But I asked the team, what are we wanting to do for Easter? What do we want to do for Christmas? What do we want to do for vacation bible school what what kind of outreach what kind of special events and we had planned the big events of the year and then we would meet probably 8 to 10 times uh, during the year on a monthly basis to refine the plans and and do some ongoing training and discussion but i wanted them to take ownership and every once in a while a leader would come directly to me and say i have this great idea i want to do it cuz they want to go straight to the pastor because he has the authority and i would say wait a minute we need to bring this to the leadership team. Because if I approve this, I may not realize the ramifications on some of the other team members. Uh, so have you talked to them first before you came to me? And of course, usually they hadn't. They were trying to take a shortcut. But so I would, you know, unless it's a true emergency or an unusual situation, I'd say, well, let's take this to our next uh, leadership team meeting. Let's talk about it. Sounds like a good idea. But I don't know what that means. If we approve this new thing, it might affect some other event or some other um, department. So I need to get every, and, I, and plus, you're going to need everybody else's support on this. And the best way to do that is to bring it to them, let them talk about it, and then we all agree on it, then we all support it. And I, So I try to respect the team members. But what I found unexpectedly is those team leaders were then responsible to develop their own teams. And in many cases, they became little dictators, and they would have five members of their Sunday school team or youth team, and they'd give all the orders. Well, senior leadership team said, we're going to do this. Pastor Bernard said, we're going to do this. So we are going to do this, and you will do that, and you will do that, and you'll do Somebody would say, but I have an idea. And basically, in a nice way, we don't care about your ideas. I'm the, I'm the leader. Brother Bernard appointed me, and you're just going to do it. And so I'd have to call in that leader and say, wait a minute. I treat you with respect. Before I make a major decision that affects your area, I check with you. And we talk with you. And I ask for your ideas, uh, what your vision is. And, And once we decide on a direction, I still ask your ideas how to implement. Well, you have to do the same thing to your team. The way I respect you, you have to respect your team. It has to be a team culture all the way down. Even though it's easier for one person to make a unilateral decision, that's really not the best way. And I'll talk more about that tomorrow, developing servant leaders. Okay, I've got to hurry on. Number two is servant leadership. Servant leadership. The culture of a servant has to be embedded in the life of the church and in the heart of the leader. So we find Jesus giving instruction in Matthew 20, 25 through 28. So the context is the disciples are arguing over who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. So Jesus finds a teachable moment. Matthew 20, 25, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. So we got to be careful. I actually think servant leadership is a good principle even in business, business community. But we, and so we can learn a lot from the business world. You know, I have a degree, undergraduate degree in managerial studies, and I have a, a jur, doctorate of jurisprudence in law. And so I learned a lot of things from the secular world. And over the years, I've studied and read and found lots of good materials on leadership from the secular world or even from the larger Christian community. Uh, But we do have to be careful what we borrow because Jesus said the mentality of the world is different from what should be the culture of the church. So in the world, we think of a leader as, you know, how many people he has control over how many people he directs, how much money he makes, how many perks he gets, or occasionally she. she. But that's not how we should look at it in the church. It's not about status or position or control or power or perks or privileges. It's about serving. So it's not wrong to desire to be a leader. You know, Paul said, if you desire to be a bishop, that's a good thing. You should have some ambition. If you're going to be a leader, There needs to be uh, uh, self-motivation. There needs to be a drive to excel. But we've got to temper that in prayer. And I I think we have mixed motives. You know, some people say, "Well, well, God knows my heart. Of course, my answer is that's the problem. God knows my heart, and I don't. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. Who can know it? I don't take satisfaction saying, well, my heart is right, my intention is right, because I can't always trust, you know, we humans are great at self-justification. If we want to do something, we can come up with great reasons why it's the right thing to do. Now, if we see somebody else doing the very same thing, it's easy to judge them. You know, they're angry, they're hot-tempered, they do this, they do that. We do the same thing. It's not because of our character. It's because I had a bad day. I was pushed beyond reason. I'm really normally a very calm, moderate person, but this unreasonable person maneuvered me and forced me, and I reacted, but really, I'm not to blame. You know, that's how we look at ourselves. We can be pretty good at evaluating others, but not so good at ourselves. So how do we handle that? I think periodically we have to just go back to God in prayer and say, Lord, purge my motives. Help me to want the right thing, but for the right reason. If I'm a leader, help me to humble myself so that that circumstances don't humble me. I'd rather humble myself than God humble me. You know, I'd rather realize what I need to do and do it rather than God have to send circumstances my way to humiliate me. So I think we just have to remind ourselves, I'm here to serve. And the reason why I have this desire to lead is so I can be a more effective servant because I can do what God has called me to do. And, and so we just have to remind ourselves we're here to serve. So if you're a pastor of 10 people, you got 10 people to serve. If you're a pastor of 300 people, well, that's a lot more work because now you, to some extent you have to serve 300 people. And, of course, you need a good team to help you do that. But this attitude of service, uh, we, we need to remind ourselves and we re- need to train our team that we're here to serve. In that regard, I would like to also read First Peter uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 4, First uh, Peter 5, the elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. So, the King James says, feed the flock. It's actually, the Greek is literally shepherd. And so, here you see the elders are the shepherds, pastors, are the overseers, which is the same Greek word from which we get bishop. So, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, not because you're forced to do this, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, not because what you can get out of it, either by cheating or by using your position for personal, personal aggrandizement, uh, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So not as dictators, not, uh, but as examples. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. So we must remind ourselves, we're not the chief shepherd. We're the under-shepherd. We're accountable. Uh, we, our, our authority is limited. There's no authority that's absolute except God's. And, you know, if we're going to have authority, we have to be under authority. And I think a good test, I, as I said, I do believe in real spiritual authority, but it's not absolute. We can only go so far. Our authority is based on the Word of God. And, and if you're a pastor, you have authority to, to teach your people to preach to your people, to counsel and advise them according to Scripture. And, but, but at the end of the day, you can't make everything a test of rebellion, and you can't give absolutes. You know, Some people think uh, the, the, the leader should have the absolute veto power. I don't really agree with that. I don't think you can abdicate, abdicate your own personal responsibility, and I don't think a leader should take that because then you become responsible for everything. But here's the other problem. If that's, if you think you should be able to have that much authority, are you willing to submit to that much authority? And very few people are. You know, I say sometimes about authoritarianism in leadership, some people are so strict and so authoritarian, they would not sit under themselves. So don't be the kind of leader you would not like to follow. Now, occasion and by the way, that's the golden rule. Matthew 7, 12, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, preachers aren't exempt from the golden rule. You know, as Brother J.T. used to say, you know, it's nice if preachers can be Christians. So don't forget that you're still a Christian. There, all the statements of the Bible about submitting to authority and obeying those that have the rule of you, I don't think it's absolute. Uh, you know, I don't think as a general superintendent I have the right to come to a pastor to tell them what to do, and if they don't do it, they're in rebellion. Uh, I don't don't think I have that authority, but I do think there is some kind of leadership in the body of Christ to whom we submit. It's just beyond the local church or beyond ourselves because there's no, all the statements in Scripture uh, for leadership and authority and submission and respect, there's no asterisk that says if you're a card-carrying member of the UPC, this this verse does not apply to you because you're a preacher (laughs) or you're a pastor. You know, so so then some people might say, well, my district superintendent or my general superintendent, they don't have a right to do X, Y, Z. And I, I would agree. But I would say, okay, then, if their leadership is limited, can your leadership be absolute? You know, where, where is the, where, it seems like maybe your view of authority might be a little skewed here. Because it applies in absolute sense one way, but not the other way. And my answer is it shouldn't be absolute anyway. No authority is absolute except God's. Every other authority has limitations. So there's a real leadership here, but we're leading as a servant, and we're leading by example. And and I will say this, leadership is influence. So let's be very practical. I think you can have leadership on paper, and it's from God, okay? So I think a pastor, senior pastor of a church, has real authority, as the overseer of all aspects of the church, and that's from God. And then if that senior pastor appoints a youth pastor or some coordinator or some director, they have the corresponding authority. Okay, I, I agree with that. But in the real world, just because you're a new pastor doesn't mean you can effectively exercise what I just said is your rightful authority. And if you just got appointed by the pastor to some job, Again, that doesn't mean in the real world that you actually can exercise the authority. In the real world, leadership is influence. So that's why a new pastor or anybody in a new position, unless you are dealing with a crisis that demands radical action, and everybody can see that, you're wise to go slow on making changes and invest heavily in relationships. And I do not mean to be manipulative. I mean, this is the way leadership works in the real world. Leadership is by influence. You have to develop a relationship. When you serve people, when you care for people, when you pray for them, when you counsel them, when you visit them, when you're by their side through a crisis, when, when, you're there, when they're in the hospital, when you're helped salvage their marriage, when you're reaching out for their kid who's going astray, and you spend time and energy and effort, and you're sincere, and you love them, and you care for them, you're building influence. So then, when you have to make a hard decision that affects that person. Or you have to give advice to that person that's hard for them to take. They're not just think, well, he's the pastor, so i got to do what he says. Maybe that's the way they should think. But the way they're probably going to think is, he loves me. He cares for me. He wants what's best for me. And even though I can't really see why this, I trust him. He's been right every time before. He's been with me every time before. He's walked through my trials with me every time before, so... Even though I don't understand this particular decision, I'm just going to trust him. And that's how leadership works. Now, I use this analogy. Leadership is like money in the bank. You only have a limited amount. Or influence. Influence is like money in the bank. You only have a limited amount. So use it wisely. And always make more deposits than withdrawals. So you have to choose your battles. You don't have to get your way every time. Even though you're the pastor, let other people try things. Let other, Even if you are not 100% convinced of something, a leader is passionate about doing something, maybe give them parameters, but let them try it. And Sometimes they'll surprise you about how successful it is. Other times they'll learn their lesson that it would have been wiser for them to pay more attention to your cues. But you don't have to make every decision. You don't have to correct every mistake. You don't have to fix everything that's not 100% optimal. Save your influence when it's really necessary. Sometimes you will have to overrule a decision. Sometimes you will have to give clear direction that's different than what the leader is wanting to do. But make sure you feel like it's worth spending your influence. Because even though you're the leader, and this is at any leader, And even though you have the authority from God and authority on paper in the real world, every time you make a major decision or a major change, you're spending some influence. So just make sure it's worthwhile. And when you do that, again, I don't mean this in a manipulative sense, but be sure you keep investing. So if you've had to walk through a difficult decision for your church or your group or for an individual... Make sure you are attentive to praying for them and serving them and meeting their needs and being there for them because you need to build up more influence. You need to make sure there's more influence in the bank than what you're spending so that if another unexpected crisis comes, you're not depleted, but people do understand where you're coming from. Servant leadership. So leading by service and leading by example, the leader can't go further than he or she is already gone. People have to know you've been there and done that, and you've done more than you're expecting them to do. You're stricter on yourself than what you think they should do. You're gonna work right alongside them and do everything that you ask them to do. Or maybe if you're in a senior level of leadership and you can't be there and do everything they're doing, they need to know you've already been there and done that. There was a time you did all that. And the only reason why you're not now is because you're needed in other areas, but you're not too big to mow the grass, or take out the trash, or you know, it, it, in all of our building programs, I, I didn't have any skill, so my labor was unskilled labor. So I was the guy that you know carried out the the uh, unused lumber, or you know stuff the insulation in the walls, or laid the sod you know in the mud you know because I didn't have the skill to uh, do the plumbing or the electrician electricity or even do a very good job of putting up the studs, you know, I just had to do, but I wasn't too proud. If it's a work day, I was going to be there and I was going to work and I was going to encourage my team to work. And uh, so you need to, and, and the, in a, especially in a church context or a volunteer context or nonprofit context, the power to communicate is the power to lead. So you have to lead by communicating the vision over and over again. Okay. Let me hasten on uh, by the way, servant leadership is an antidote to abusive leadership. When you create a culture of servant leadership, it becomes more difficult for abusers to succeed. Now, sad to say, abusive people can often gravitate to a church context because everybody's trusting and loving. There's often not adequate um, you know, investigation of the past. We're just happy you're here. Plus, we believe that God forgave whatever happened. And so there's a high level of trust, but there's a high level of authority. So if you do get a position of authority, people are supposed to do what you say. Well, that can easily, maybe nine times out of 10, it works fine. But that one time out of 10, a leader could become abusive and you won't even know it, whether it's physically, sexually, emotionally, verbally. But if you have a culture Or you're frequently talking about leaders or servants, leaders of accountable. The highest leader is accountable to peers and to a structure and to the body. And I'm accountable to you. Well, then you are fighting against that unknown situation. So that culture of servant leadership and leadership by example in in your speech, in your preaching, in your teaching, in your actions, in your respect for people, And even when you use authority, sometimes you have to use it, but sometimes you can hold back a little. You know, people see that. That will communicate non-verbally to create a culture where someone who does try to be authoritarian or abusive will stick out and there will be red flags and warnings. Even before they're able to be abusive, you'll be able to identify the potential problem. Okay, number three, accountability and shared governance. I got that shared governance from working at UGST all over across the years, but I think it fits in a church context. I've already really talked about this to some extent. Accountability and shared governance. And Dr. Coulthard alluded to this, but if you go through the book of Acts, in Acts 2, you find Acts 2, 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. They were together. They had fellowship together. They, they ate together. They, had, they prayed together. They had communion, the Lord's Supper together. Then in Acts 6, he mentioned that when the apostles needed help in resolving disputes of the church. This is very interesting. We might expect the apostles to select seven men. But they asked the church to select seven men, and then they ordained them, or they laid their hands on them. So I think that may be a prototype for local church government, what we might call deacons today, board members, senior leadership team, involve the people in some way in the selection process, not just unilaterally, the preachers. Because here you see shared governance, You want these people to serve. You want these people to resolve disputes in the congregation. You want these people to be respected that they're handling the food distribution, which I think implies they handle the collections. Well, then you want the people to have confidence in them. So what better way than ask the people to nominate some trusted men among them? So shared governance. Uh, and you, you see other disputes in Acts. Acts 15, all the apostles and elders came to Jerusalem to make this decision about how to, what do we do, do with Gentiles in the church. So it wasn't just the top leaders, but really like a general conference, all the credential ministers, you might say, came. And there was sharp dispute. There was debate. But they continued working until they reached a consensus. They sent the result to all the churches. So you notice... Acts 16, 4 through 5, the delegates from the council went to each local church and read a letter of the decision of the council. And interestingly, they did not expect that one local church would say, you know what, I'm turning in my credentials. I'm not going to be part of the United Apostolic Pentecostal Church International. I'm going to go on my own. They expected all the local churches would say, thank you. That's what the elders and apostles in Jerusalem decided. That's what we will do. I'm sure there might have been some who did rebel against that because you do find in Galatians some Judaizers came from Jerusalem and did try to undercut. Um, And and that might have been before the council, but they were going against the consensus. So it wasn't all happy, but the principle here is is every local church was committed to following what the body had decided. But it wasn't a unilateral decision from the Pope. It was a collective decision of the leadership and the ministry. But notice the shared governance. So I'm just suggesting um, that on the local level and at every level, there needs to be some kind of shared governance where the people have A stake. The people have a voice. The people have influence. And we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. You know, there's, and I'm not gonna go and read it, but He Hebrews has, you know, the famous pay, obey those that have the rule over you. And I do believe that, but it says, Whose faith follow? And it also says they must give an account to God. So there's a strong sense of accountability. And then it's often used. Like a pastor will teach on this, which I think is right. I did that myself. But does the pastor have to follow it too? How does he follow it? Who does he obey? Is obedience absolute? You've already heard me suggest it's not. But it must mean something. And if it means something to the saints, it must mean same thing to the preacher somehow. I mean, I'm not saying how it has to be done. I'm saying there's a principle here that none of us in this room can safely ignore. There is authority, there is submission to authority, but there is limited authority and accountability authority. So, teaching like this will help us avoid authoritarianism. Okay, number four, effective transitions, effective transitions. I would say this is one of the biggest dangers uh, that we face as an organization. At every level of leadership, from presbyter to district superintendent to general superintendent, I've had to mediate transitions. And interestingly, our latest research, we have a full-time director of research and development, and we're digging into the data that we already have and mining that data. Interestingly, we're doing a better job, in fact, a great job of new churches surviving. So what we call a home missions or North American Missions Church, first five years, we're seeing those churches survive. A high percentage, higher than before, are surviving. We attribute that to several things. First of all, by having preaching points and daughter works, you have a, a ramp so that they're, by the time they get to uh, self-governing North American Mission Church status, they've already had some years to grow and be successful and see if it's going to work. Also... Uh, the, our North American Missions team has the launch, which is a training program. We're doing, we're, I think we're doing more training of church planters. We're also, we, for 12 years, we've had record um, offerings. And so we're able to give more money to those church planters. So the church planters are becoming more successful. So where is the, the highest risk point? About 15 to 20 years in the life of a church is where it's a risk of closing. Now, why would that be? Well, when you couple it with this, the median church age of the median age of church planners is forty-nine. Now, we're trying to drive that down through being more effective in communicating with even going to teenagers and young adults, creating a burden and a vision, and hopefully we'll get more people in their twenties and thirties who plant churches. And that that's a long-term strategy. Hopefully, we we'll drive that down. I'd like to see the median age to be more like thirty or thirty-five. But think about it this. If the median age is 49, what's happening in 15 or 20 years? That church planter is retiring. And he's probably been vocational. He's probably been the number one financial supporter of the church. He and his family have probably been the main ones operating all the key positions. So if their church hasn't really grown, it's not really thriving, but it can survive just with the founding pastor and his family and his extraordinary level of commitment. But the challenge comes in when he's ready to let go, he's got to find someone else who's willing to make the same extraordinary level of commitment for a church he didn't start. And that founding pastor may no longer be in a position to support financially. The family members may no longer have the same commitment. And so now, if you don't find the right successor... The church is going to close. So, and often we find pastors haven't planned their retirement adequately, and they expect the, the church to continue supporting them indefinitely in retirement. And I like to say it is they are deserving of it, but it's not best practices. Brother Jerome tells me the average life of a plan in retirement is 30 months in the UPCI. Three years, that's long enough there'll be enough new people that'll understand why we're still supporting a retired pastor or a widow or two pastors full-time when the new pastor may not be getting a full-time salary and needs it, or he needs an assistant, or we need a building program. And so they're saying, we're going to have to cut costs somewhere. Let's cut costs in the past. And, 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 of course, if the pastor couldn't afford a retirement plan I mean, you really have to set aside a retirement plan while you're pastoring. That's why that's a solution. That's why we have the minister's retirement fund. But think about it if the pastor says, Well, I can't afford that, but well, all of a sudden his successor is supposed to afford that, right? To pay him, not to speak of the successor's own plan. So my point is, we have to step back and plan. And while we live sacrificially, we need to plan our transition from the start. And then we'll have a lot smoother transitions, and uh, you know, we can find the right person who is qualified, who has the approval of God, the approval of the people, who may or may not be a relative or a friend. But you're not having to depend on a relative to guarantee the financial plan. You're able to choose the person who's really best suited to be the successor. Now, 2 Timothy 2.2 this really, I, I've, I've known about this passage, but it really struck home to me when I was dealing with all these things. Here's Paul to Timothy. So we think of Timothy as a young minister, right? Paul to Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, and the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So Paul is planning three generations of leadership. Even though he thinks the Lord could come in his day. He's planning for three generations. Notice that. He's training Timothy, a young minister, who will far outlive him. But part of Timothy's job is to train other leaders. And part of the qualifications and the curriculum for those leaders is they have to be able to train. So Paul is setting up three generations of transition of leadership. So we have to think ahead. Now, when I went to Austin to start the church... I was 35. I expected to be there the rest of my ministry. I didn't expect to leave, and I certainly didn't expect to be general superintendent, but whatever I did, I n- did not expect to resign that church. I had a long-range strategy. but And I really thought I'd already been involved in 11 years of full-time ministry, Bible college, teaching, writing, and so I was already involved in leadership training, but I felt like that part of my ministry would be on hold for 5 or 10 years. When You're trying to build a church, you're not going to be able to Train leaders. Well, I was wrong. Within the first year, three young Bible college graduates moved to our area, and I had to start doing some of them. And then I began to realize I'm going to be needing leaders in a few years. I can't wait till I need them. I need to start training them now. So I started leadership training and leadership classes uh, just with potential leaders. And then God sent other people to us. We started Daughter Works, and people came. And so it just exploded, and we trained over 60 ministers who either received credentials or an upgrade or became a daughter work pastor, assistant daughter work pastor, over 60 ministers in the 18 years I was there. Credential ministers of the UPCI. So um, my book, Spiritual Leadership in the 21st Century, is what I developed to to do all that. But the point is, I kind of backed into it unknowingly, but from the beginning almost, I was training for the future. And my long-term associate pastor ended up becoming the next pastor. So I didn't expect at 52 to resign the church. But thankfully, I had a leadership team, and I had a senior leader that had been trained for 17 years, and we were able to make as a smooth transition as possible. I mean, in retrospect, we were in the middle of a major building program. So thankfully, we had purchased the property for $3 million, but he had a $12 million building program that he was in the middle of as a brand new pastor. So think about that. The church lost their founding pastor, the only pastor they've ever known. He had been the long-term associate pastor. So by him coming pastor, that position was vacant. And he had to find somebody there. In the middle of a $12 million building program, $8 million loan, sixty billion payment, a $60,000 monthly payment as it turned out. But thankfully, we were able to pay it down and raise some money and cut it down to about half. But still, that kind of major transition could have killed the church. But because, not all to my credit, I didn't know this was going to happen, so God, I guess God just helped us. But we did have a culture of leadership, and so we we're able to make that transition. Now, most transitions may not be as dramatic as that, but the point is, you, you have to be thinking about leadership training and transition of leadership. You know, I used to think, growing from a small church to a bigger church, if I can ever get the right team in place, we'll be home free. If I can get the right youth pastor, the right music director, the right children's leader, you know, we get all those in place, then we can have church. Of course, that means nobody can get called to start another church. Nobody can, you know move out of town, you, you know, nobody can backslide, they all have to stay in place. You know what? That's never going to happen. By the time you get the perfect team, one person is going to backslide, get offended, get a job transfer, move out of town, get called to preach or whatever. And then I realized, "Hey, that's a good thing." Because if I had the perfect team, they wouldn't really think they needed the pastor. But because we're always working on it, then that gives the pastor job security. And then I realized that's a good thing because when you're always in flux, that means, first of all, you're releasing people appropriately to the kingdom, uh, but also that creates a flow of leadership where there's potential for others to arise. And people you didn't really expect could have that quality, now suddenly they develop that quality. And so as long as it's managed right, that flow of leadership is actually very healthy for a church. Because it keeps the leadership fresh and alive and vibrant and changing, it does require more work. And then finally, I'm I'm out of time, so uh, I have to quit. But the fifth and final point is Christian liberty, and uh, Romans 14. I'm not going to read it because of the sake of time, but it talks about how we respect differences in the church. Now, it's not talking about biblical teachings. It's not talking about morality. We should agree on the basic teachings of the Bible. We should agree, agree on basic Christian morality. We should agree on the basic teachings of holiness. I think those are part of doctrine. Some people say, well, there's doctrine and then there's holiness. I don't agree with that. I believe holiness is part of doctrine. You now, the applications may somewhat vary, but the teachings, the principles, the concepts, the, the Bible, we should agree. But there are areas of personal conviction as opposed to scriptural conviction or personal preference, or cultural preference, that may make a lot of sense, but they may not be the level of Scripture. And sometimes we haven't been very good at distinguishing the two. I've learned as a pastor, especially in a non-Christian environment, especially dealing with people that weren't raised in church, if you'll be honest and say this is a biblical teaching, it's a matter of holiness, this application that I'm giving you is a biblical teaching teaching and then if you say this other thing is a preference you're much more likely to get compliance on the whole thing if you're honest but if you try to make everything heaven or hell or everything absolute or everything either rebelling or obeying then you'll have some strong followers but you're going to have some that you lose unnecessarily it's, the important thing is just to be intellectually and scripturally honest. If you've got scripture, you should and must preach it and enforce it. And some things, like dressing modestly, that's scripture, but you have to apply it. And if you're just honest by saying, here's how we need to apply it. But then if there's some things that aren't even even an application, but just a preference, you're better off saying, I'm just asking you if you're going to lead from the platform, this is the certain type of thing I would like. Uh, But I'm not saying that's required by Scripture. I'm not saying that's what you have to do in your everyday life. You don't have to wear a tie uh, all day long, but I I want you to wear a tie on the platform. If you are just honest, that's fine. So even within the local church, there needs to be some Christian liberty. There needs to be some leeway. I dealt with people. I dealt with uh, new converts that got so zealous and they got into health and all this. They became vegetarians. They were convinced it was the original plan of God. Well, they started preaching it to everybody else. And I had to teach Christian liberty. I had some people that moved into town. They thought any form of costume party was, you know, of the devil. And, uh, or any form of Christmas celebration was of the devil. And I had to sit them down and say, look, if, you, if that's what it means to you, by all means abstain. But don't judge everybody in the church just because of that. You have to allow some grace. And they finally learned the lesson as their their family and life crashed. Costumes were the least of their problems, you know. But thankfully, they learned grace, and they were the biggest recipients of it, and they're doing well today. So even within a local church, a pastor is wise to allow Christian liberty. And among churches, there has to be even a little more Degree of Christian liberty. Think about this. Paul was teaching this in Romans to the local church. He was saying, Some of you don't think you should eat meat, that's fine, but don't judge the other person in your same church. Some don't think you should observe a certain day, that's fine, but don't judge the other person who does. We have to have a certain tolerance. If we're going to have a healthy church, you know in our mind, we might think if everybody would be the same, then that would be the perfect church. No, it would be a dysfunctional church. If the whole body were one member, you couldn't survive. So you shouldn't, you you should celebrate the diversity within the confines of true scriptural unity. And when you have both, then you're going to have a healthy, growing church. Well, I've covered all the territory I can cover tonight, but I'll leave you with this thought I alluded to earlier. Matthew 7, 12, Jesus said, Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So much of effective ministry, effective pastoring, effective leadership boils down to simple respect and love for people. What I call common sense, which seems to be uncommon. But if you treat somebody the way you would like to be treated, that goes a long way. Somebody might be rebellious or have questions, but have you ever had questions? And somebody thought you were rebellious and you weren't really, you just wanted to know. Well, assume that and treat them accordingly. And many times you'll be right, and occasionally, if they're really rebellious, God will convict them because of the nice way you're treating them, and they'll change. Or in the worst case scenario, if they act up, the whole church can now see. You treated them with utmost respect and assumed the best and they proved you were wrong, shame on them. And what would have been a major crisis becomes an isolated incident because you treated them as you would have wished to be treated yourself. And so I think a lot of what I say can go right there. If we would be the kind of leader that we would like to follow, then we can build a healthy team and a healthy church. Well, let's stand together. Sister Russell asked if I was going to give an altar call. So, I don't necessarily think so, but maybe if I've hit you hard on something, maybe you should go pray and ask God to help you. I hope I've done some good here tonight. I hope I've done more building up than tearing up, but, but anyway, it's all yours now. So why don't we pray together and ask for God's blessings. Thank you, Lord, for an attentive audience that wants to hear and understand and learn and grow. Help us all to grow, to be healthy leaders, to build healthy teams and healthy churches, Help us to to mold a local culture and a church-wide culture that's strong, biblical, healthy, and can reach our generation and our culture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.